Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. Hey, Unstackers, hope you've had a great week. This week, I chat with someone who likely needs no introduction. Her name is Debbie Wan, and she's a founding partner at Primitive Ventures. In our conversation, we unstack everything from her thoughts on the evolution of governance in the context of venture capital to the digital yuan experiment that's kicked off in China this week. Dovey's known for her nuanced opinions about crypto in China and shares with us about her experience founding a cross-border VC firm, becoming an educator and community builder in the Wi-Fi 2 ecosystem, and remaining a close observer of China's role in the global digital currency race. Dovey kicks off a new conversation for us here on Crypto Unstacked on crypto and tech in China. And I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. If this podcast resonates with you, please share with your friends and get the word out about Crypto Unstacked. It would be immensely helpful if you can also leave a rating on Apple. And drop me a note on Twitter at Les Lambo, that's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0, to let me know your thoughts on this episode or future topics you'd like to see covered. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Dovey, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you join me on the pod. Yeah, thank you, Leslie, for uh, having me. Dovey, you're a founding partner of Primitive Ventures, a global crypto asset holding company. You started Primitive with Eric Meltzer back in 2018, and you've really been in this space for a really long time, uh, for about six years now, I think. And you were originally drew into the space like many others, through Bitcoin. And you, you even have a famous catchphrase that it's long Bitcoin short the world. That's and true. I think you even have a t-shirt, right? That <laughs> that has the quote on there. And and for a conversation today, you know, I have a laundry list of things that I would love to explore with you because even though primitive ventures, you know, might not be too public about a lot of your investments, you know, investment thesis, so on and so forth, you yourself are very public on many social media platforms in the East and in the West about your convictions of the space. Um, and, and you have a very nuanced opinion about a lot of things that are happening in the ecosystem and how it's evolving in the East and in the West. So I would love to dig deep into some of these convictions uh, during the course of our conversation today. If that sounds good with you, let's dive in. Sounds good. Yeah, let's roll. <laughs> So you've commented before that when it comes to the traditional uh, VC fund model, they tend to be very regionally focused, uh, whether it be the U.S., Europe, Asia. It's very difficult 
to find a fund, especially within the microcosm of crypto, who's really been able to have visibility on multiple continents. So would love to just start off very broadly and, you know, ask you, what are your motivations for starting this fund to have a focus on both the U.S. and Asia? Why is it important to you? If you just simply go to like coin market cap and like look at the top 20 coins, right? So just I make a count of like how many of those are like funded by like U.S. founders or like the team is actually basing value or like basing the U.S. alone. There's only a handful of them. There's actually less than five. So it's just that statistically speaking, and we shouldn't focus just on U.S. If you think about the business model of like all these like major internet business, right? Marketplaces, like advertisement, and then also like gaming. Everything is actually um, monetized based on like user data. And then so it's the centralization of like user data, right? So when it comes to that specific business model, you will need to have a founder. So that's more like a general. It's more like a general that he or she can actually lead the army that co-located in a specific space because all the startups in traditional VC world, so they're fighting for efficiency. They're fighting for like a certain market share, right? Usually they will start with a specific geo locations. And so like that is the nature of like the conventional VC investment. So like that's why we have seen everything has been slow centralized. Like the whole valley is like a stack. At the south of it is more like infrastructure. So where Intel, NVIDIA, and all these like chip companies are based off. If we move up to the city in San Francisco and you will see Uber, Airbnb, et cetera, so more at the application layer, right? So, so like the whole valley is like a stack. And then all the money, like the resources are highly centralized, just located on the Sand Hill Road. And I think when it comes to crypto, the top crypto projects are not, most of them are not founded by U.S. founders. If you look at like the distribution of all the builders and many of the developers are from Eastern Europe or from Asia or like from Southeast Asia. So, so it's highly distributed. So if you're an investor and if you only focus on a certain geolocation, you're definitely going to miss out a lot of opportunity outside of your horizon. That is like the first principle when we start primitive and why we want to make it global, at least from the access and information gathering perspective. And we want ourselves to be as open-minded as Mm -hmm. possible and just that don't pigeonhole ourselves in a specific geolocation. That makes a lot of sense because... We talk about Silicon Valley these days. I almost feel like it's less about the location and more about the state of mind when it mm-hmm. comes to Silicon Valley. It's that entrepreneurship spirit. Like the valley definitely represent a like a state of mind or like a spirit. But I think it's more about this like network, right? So we have a network of like entrepreneurs like coming from like all of the places. So I think the network effect of like human capital and like brand power is really strong for the valley. But I think that's for the past because like in the past, like we don't have Slack and we don't have Zoom. We don't have all this like great technology that help us to have group creative thinking across the ocean. It makes a lot of sense for the past decade. So if you have read uh, many of these uh, early days writing from that program, founder of the Y Combinator, 
people just like to gather together in like a small garage and have this like brainstorming section. And then many of these like great innovation coming out of like serendipity, which require people to be co-located. But I think right now we don't have to do that, right? And, and we have all this like face-to-face like, streaming tech. And probably in the future, we will have this like, hologram of like AR, VR. So can probably make this virtual interaction much more immersive. And, and so like we don't need to depend on like physical co-location. That's my whole vision for the future and, and, and how things can evolve like post-COVID. I love what you said there about this industry becoming more immersive. And for sure, I mean, that could really change the way we even interact in the future. Of course, we're not sitting in one physical location today and, and doing this interview, right? We are still able to get really high quality conversations because of platforms like Zoom. Right. And, and I almost think when we extend this analogy to look at crypto as a microcosm, DeFi is even more of an immersive experience. And what I mean by that is when you take a look at a sub piece of DeFi, which is this very dynamic community based organizations, uh, when we talk about things like governance, it is about immersing yourself as a member of a community or as a founder immersing with the broader protocol community it is about connecting in ways that are completely virtual right and i think that's mm-hmm. so fascinating when we look at the space over the past just couple months let's take from march until now the pace at which this ecosystem has grown has been entirely because of the communities that have been built online not offline at conferences, yep, completely yep. online. Would love your take on that, really. Just your thoughts on, on how this has evolved, really, DeFi specifically over the past couple months within this, you know, sort of virtual context we've been talking about. Right. I think, first of all, it's a great timing. So it's just a great timing. So if you look at the whole stop trading volume and just post, uh, just like, uh, post-COVID and during the quarantine and just like how Robinhood has like, skyrocketed into the app ranking. Um, I think there's a very interesting take I have that um, all this like, virtual economy and definitely benefits from uh, the whole like pandemic thing. And then especially when it comes to something related to gambling. So when you're at home and you have nothing to do and and like you have probably some stimulus package from your government, you'll probably start to trade crypto and stock. Um, so like that's what we have seen for the last six months and, and just like during the peak of the pandemic. And I think when it comes to DeFi specifically, everything has been massively deleveraged on the March 12th, right? And, and so we have seen the open interest on BitMEX and like across the board just like drop to historical low. So that is like the biggest test ever for the whole DeFi community because I make her at like one point of time has become insolvent and they have to go through the whole auction just to go back to the pack. And I think like afterwards and like things just started probably by the compound. So when they offer this a whole yield farming program, I remember that's in June. So no, that's in July. Like the DeFi farming movement this year is started by compound. Afterwards, like things gets a little bit crazier. So when like white earn just yawn, like started and then like gets definitely much more crazier and a little bit out of control. 
a little bit out of control started by Yam. And then like afterwards, like there's so many just like different forks and like copies and just like simply print. It's the crypto version helicopter money, right? So a lot of people are asking where are all this quote unquote DeFi money coming from? At the end of the day, it's coming from whoever bought all this DeFi coin at the secondary. And then so who actually provide the liquidity, who set this like, fair market value in a very unsustainable way. These are the people at the end of the day is the counterparty uh, of who has been farming DeFi. So I think the whole DeFi game is so it's more like a growth hacking mechanism for many of these like, DeFi projects. So they can simply print the reward like out of thin air by their own reserve, by their own central bank, right? So I think along the way, so there's definitely like, just like net positive for the whole industry, like like the adoption of all this DeFi protocol and like self-education process uh, pushed by farming. And then so even just look at the growth of like the DEX usage is definitely valuable for the industry in the long run. So I think to your question and how this DeFi evolved, and it's just like any bubble, so it has to be back to the human nature. So because the bubble itself like mm-hmm. generate a high yield opportunity in a very short period of time. And then so it simply generate a thousand percent profits that over like difference and over a week. I think it's just human nature that people will easily fall more into it. So our industry has been driven by all these like, formal mental forces like for like many cycles, like ever since the starting of Bitcoin. And then later on to the 2017, I see a boom and bust and then all the way through this like, DeFi thing. And so probably to the Western uh, crypto community, many of them like haven't been through the 2018 liquidity mining program like offered by many of these like, centralized exchanges. So the playbook is so similar. So like the playbook is exactly the same, right? And so back in 2018, just to give the audience more context, a centralized exchange is called Fcoin. So they offer this uh, transaction fee mining program and which is from incentive design perspective is exactly the same as many of these like, DeFi liquidity mining program or like, or just like farming program in general. So if you as a trader, depending on your trading volume on the platform, you will be rewarded by the platform token. Yeah, so like many of these proof of capital type of program are designed in a very similar way. Basically, you have to put your capital at work, either for trading, for so for like lending or for borrowing. And it's a, so it's basically proof of capital game, right? Back in 2018, like AppCoin started this transaction fee binding program. And, and then I remember like quickly climb up to be the number one exchanges, even outperform Binance and Coinbase from just pure volume perspective. Much of the volume are just wash traded. Uh, just like at the very early stage of the compound liquidity mining program, just that much of this like, TLV are like wash lender, right? So I think the playbook is very, very similar. And like the whole farming craze later triggered by YEARN because like the token Wi-Fi quickly become a unicorn coin, right? And so if you think about how much wealth has been generated like over just like one week distribution, like people can easily get crazy uh, by that. So yeah, so like that's my whole take for the like this like DeFi movement. Hey Unstackers, I wanted to let you know that Amber Group has just rolled out our new mobile app. The Amber app is designed to help you achieve optimal investment returns through market-leading interest rate products, yield enhancement, and risk management tools, all in one application. 
Right now, when you refer a friend, you can earn 30% of your friend's trading fees and 10% of your friend's interest earnings. Your friend will also earn 10% extra interest. Plus, new Amber App users are able to earn 16% APR on select Bitcoin and Ethereum time deposits. Invite your friends and start earning rewards together. Amber is your gateway to crypto finance. Download the Amber app and select Apple and Android app stores today. I would love to talk about the sense of governance and in the context of venture, because when we you know, roll this back and, and look at traditional VCs, you've made the point before that it's mostly ba- based on paper governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- what we're seeing in crypto now is that what's important is dynamic community driven governance, not paper governance anymore. And so what's your take on the evolution of governance in crypto within the context of venture capital? Yeah, so I think this is a very interesting like question and like we internally has been discussed a lot. If you remember like back in 2017, a lot of this POS coin, they've had the major stake from like institutional or like VC investment and like a certain VC probably take over 30% of the ownership. And so I have been publicly criticizing this type of behavior because that this can lead to a very adversary governance experience in the future. Like the VC will have the power over the entire community because the trust is the most scarce asset of our whole industry. If me as a community member, so if I see a VC coin that like a certain stakeholder has over 30% of the stake, which means that the whole governance is just a governance theater, right? And so like there's no point for me to participating. So I think the whole fundraising mechanisms from traditional like pre-sale or like rounds of pre-sale, like it is very problematic. Like if you are thinking about um, just like decentralized governance in the future for like any projects out there, especially for like POS type of projects, because that POS means like the more state you have, like the more power you have over the decision making in the future. So like talking about your question on, so like how governance gonna evolve in the future, traditionally governance comes from authority. No matter it's by the paperwork or by election, et cetera, it always comes from a single point of authority. And I think what makes the whole crypto community really fascinating, like especially for millennials and especially for our generation is the current world is led by boomers, right? So like boomers are the one at the top of the power hierarchy. And then we are very disappointed by our current government, especially after this like whole pandemic. And like one thing we have consensus on is we all deserve better government. The philosophy of someone or a group of people can possibly lead without authority is very appealing to many young people and especially for our generation and it also is the core spirit of the whole bitcoin so when satoshi invented bitcoin um just like 10 years ago like the whole premises is to to remove trusted third party so the second biggest premises is we have to own our own key. That will be the path towards like self-sovereignty. So like self-sovereignty has been the core spirit of the whole industry. And so what I consider the like the good aspect of the whole like the farming crisis, 
it is actually a token distribution mechanism, which is much more fairer than what we have seen in like 2017. And this like rounds of pre-sale towards many of these VC and just like the certain one with like a certain privilege, right? And, and at least the farming game makes the access fair. Uh, so we can definitely discuss about like Ethereum as like a layer one that the high gas fee probably prevent some of this uh, fairness. But but I think from just a general perspective, and we all agree that the fair launch mechanism is definitely distributed access in a much more acceptive way if we want to grow a decentralized community around it. So I think like that is what I consider the biggest like, net positive of all this like, DeFi farming craze. Like the token distribution mechanism we have seen from this farming, in the future, it can be designed in a more sophisticated way. It can have a better, for instance, like anti-wells mechanism. So you can make a very sophisticated like proof of work mechanism as well. Probably not just by proof of capital, like you will need to have like much more interaction of your existing capital. So I have seen many more involvement when it comes to the online type of proof of capital at work design mechanism, like to make the whole distribution a fair game. This will definitely resonate towards the core crypto ethos that our industry has built up for the last 10 years. And, and so like everything has been connected. That is my whole take for like how the government's going to evolve in the future. Mm -hmm. Do you think DeFi is fair enough, though, at this point, given how much it's evolved in the past six months? Do you feel like the participants that DeFi has attracted really looks like the fair distribution you're talking about? Um, so first of all, fairness is always relative, right? And there's no so like there's no absolute fairness. Uh, and then the other question is, are we talking about fair access or are we talking about fair result? I don't think we can achieve the goal of like like a fair result unless we design something that more towards the socialism or like communism type of like economic allocation mechanism, which I don't think will be effective or efficient when it comes to resource allocation. So if we talk about fair access and I think the current fair launch like the real fail launch, like not like a fail launch theater, right? And so like the real fail launch with like no pre-mine, like no investor, etc. depending on what is your launching mechanics. And so it's a fairer than before that only a few investors has the access of the information, like knowing this like, specific project, we will start raising. So I think this can also tie back to your first question as well. All the best VC out there, their competence always comes from information asymmetry, right? At least I think the current fair launch movement like remove part of this like information asymmetry just like along the way. So like not a hundred percent, but like definitely to a large extent. I think for anyone who has been participating in the DeFi farming, if he or she is just like old enough like to remember back in 2013, there's also this type of like I would consider as an initial mining offering like back in 2013. So that can actually resemble this like current DeFi fair launch movement very much because like, back in 2013, uh, there's this like initial uh, mining offering like where all the actual miner, like physical miner, so they will have the fair access like towards a new proof of work coin. Like that back in the day, so there's many, many different PAL coin with like different hashing algorithm. And so as long as like you have the hash rate and then so you will have the access. 
that reminds me of that. To your question, we as an industry, we should just try to push the envelope like much further for like fair access. And then whether we can achieve like fair result is like TBD, but like we definitely have to remove the information asymmetry across all borders. And, and so like, that's the whole point. And we can't talk about DeFi without talking about founders. Continuing along the thread of conversation here about fair launch is that DeFi protocols such as Wi-Fi, for example, a lot of them are like a religion where there's a community of people that really look up to the founder almost as a cult Mm -hmm. leader. And we can say that Andre Cronier fits that character very much to the T. He has such an impact on how people view the space and how people view the project Wi-Fi specifically and put so much trust into it because of Andre. So what's your take on the importance of having a cult leader or a face to the project on the growth and sustainability of a project's narrative? So first of all, like back in the days of like Bitcoin, there's a lot of like cult aspect of how the original like Bitcoin community has organized themselves. Like even though we have this like, anonymous figure as the inventor of Bitcoin, I personally think it's more about the Bitcoin philosophy that attract a lot of these like cult members and, and so like who actually believe in this true decentralized currency, this like, world currency that can actually lead to like self-sovereignty. And, and so like if you want to build a cult, you always need to have some very core ideology or just a very, very core philosophies that will attract uh, like minds, right? Like the case for like Wi-Fi, I don't think is a cult. I've met Andre before. Andre is a known figure, a very competent developer in like past three years. And, and so I think the trust or confidence around Earn or like his project is more based on his track record. It's definitely not based on some cult philosophy or some cult inference. So he himself like didn't purposely try to influence people by some cult influence. He's more like a idol type of role. And so it's like a top tier developers and has a really good like track record and pretty like charismatic like when it comes to testing prod or free launch in general. I think like we human, like we always attracted to something that is like unusual as well as selfishness. Because like Andre represents a very generous and also like competent type of technical founder. I personally don't consider like Wi-Fi as a cult. It's like a community. And it's a very strong community with a lot of confidence on a single point of failure. So like the whole product suite that Wi-Fi offers from Earn to like Y-Trade and then many other like white insurance, it is a utility business, right? So it's something that people can see and use and, and just like can actually interact with. So when you are building a utility business, what you need is that top level execution. So like that's why Andre as a execution machine gained a lot of trust and like confidence around the whole community. When it comes to currency business or like when it comes to store value business, that I would consider more as a consensus business or like a religion type of business. So if you think about Bitcoin or like any other fiat currency or like any type of like store value, that's when you need a call like more than any type of like execution, right? And so you need to build the consensus of the value in a large enough community. So that's how you can build a currency business. 
currency business is where we definitely need a cult to start with. Apple as a consumer brand is a very good example of the combination of both utility business as well as a consensus business. Because like, the premium of Apple as a brand is so large, even though it has a good enough utility, right? And so many of these like, very strong consumer brands like, will always end up as the combination of the two. But as of for now, I think YEARN or like, many other like this like, DeFi protocol I think there's still utility business. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. One project that you were involved in and I think still involved in now is Wi-Fi 2. So how do you compare the two where Wi-Fi 2 doesn't necessarily have someone like Andre, but it does have a few leaders like yourself who were very interested, right, in, in growing this community, I guess, in parallel with the core Wi-Fi community. What is being a part of that community like? I personally think like Wi-Fi 2 community is, well, so like the average community member of like Wi-Fi 2 are like less technical. The Wi-Fi community is very crypto native and then highly technical. So we have seen the list of the core community over there. So from the very crypto native community of like YARM develop into this like less technical and then less crypto native, I would consider like more average people organize around Wi-Fi 2. The history of Wi-Fi 2 is also pretty interesting. It is not developed by a like a top-tier developer like uh, somewhere in like South Africa. So like there's no centralized trust or confidence like towards like a single people. Like the whole thing starts in a 500 people WeChat group. Within the WeChat group and there's this like Chinese crypto enthusiast. And many of them, they're just like independent like freelancers or just like people who are enthusiasts and who are not even full-time on crypto. So that's how the whole project started. So like that's why the core DNA uh, of the Wi-Fi 2 community is completely different than the original YARM. Like even though there are like few crypto native supporters like myself, I would consider my own influence or like many other crypto native like figureheads like inference within the Wi-Fi 2 community is pretty minimal. And like the whole community has been evolved into a relatively mainstream, like at least here in China. Right now, the Wi-Fi 2 community has its like extended community from say for instance, like centralized exchanges and then like third is like there are many third party wallet supports and the dynamic of the ecosystem is actually different than what the YEARN has been offered. First, I consider Wi-Fi 2 as a very good educational channel and platform of the whole DeFi or just like like just like the general crypto utilization for the average Chinese consumer. So we have been rolling out a lot of this educational program at a very basic level and then just like teaching people how to use uh, MetaMask and like telling people how to withdraw their asset from the centralized exchanges and then educating them about the potential counterparty risk, like things like that. So like those are the things that the Wi-Fi 2 community has been doing are than just uh, shipping out like new, other than shipping out new DeFi products. I think like YEARN has been putting cutting edge. And then so if you look at their like recent launches of like Y insurance and then many other, so many other cutting edge like DeFi experiments. And I think the Wi-Fi 2 product development is relatively basic because like the whole development team has to consider who are the target user and target audience. 
this is also the different dynamics of at least the Chinese and like East Asia crypto users, like versus and many of these like, more advanced like Western crypto enthusiasts. And I think the retail investor here has been highly spoiled by centralized exchanges because they have the world-class customer service experience and they have a very like responsive account manager. So like many of them have no idea like what the best DeFi can actually offer. So we have to babysit them for a much longer period of time. Those are some of the reasons that why the Wi-Fi 2 community has a completely different dynamics than the Wi-Fi 1 community, like the white owned community. Mm -hmm. Does DeFi China really live on WeChat? Is that the dominant platform that people are learning about DeFi? Yeah, so it's not just the DeFi community, right? It's that everything lives on WeChat. So that's the main communication channel of uh, either your life, your work, and it's everything, right? Um, like even right now, many of these uh, governmental or like, official communication from the central government, from the local government. So they're all through like WeChat. WeChat, this is the one gigantic operating system of the Chinese society. And, and everything here is on WeChat. And we have things like Weibo and probably more resemble like Twitter. But like Weibo, like there's not like there's not good enough like interaction on Weibo and most of the retail investors, they usually like, use Weibo as a passive like information intake channel, like rather than like what we have on crypto Twitter that we have many this like, very vibrant discussion. So this is something that the Chinese retail investor that they basically depend on for their information sources. And if you want to spread out rumor, it's much easier to do it here in China because if you know how WeChat is organized, like say for instance, every group is limited to only 500 members, right? Unlike Telegram or unlike WhatsApp. And then so you can have like larger groups and like Telegram, you can easily have like 10,000 people group. So the information propagation here in China is much more slower and it has like many, many like different layers and like hierarchies. So you can easily try to brainwash like 500 people, but it's much harder for you to brainwash like 5,000 people all at once, right? That's why I think a lot of this uh, rumors and thought can easily spread out here in the Chinese crypto community. And the market is relatively easy to be manipulated. This is the same thing for like DeFi as well, especially at the later stage, uh, what I have seen for like last month or the like, last two months, there's many this uh, scam projects or just that project simply wants to do like raw pull. And, and so if they want, like they can easily have a quick win here in the Chinese community because people just don't have like enough information transparency. And that is a known issue. And I have been doing as much as I can to bridge the gap. But the thing is like, due to information barrier and like due to like this uh, information like blockage and uh, like great firewall and then all that. Um, so average people here, it's just like very hard to validate things. Yeah. So it's very hard to validate the source of the information. So say for instance, if like something turned out to be a fraud and I think given just like one hour and like things can easily just like bubble up and just emerge on like on the Twitter, right? And, and, but when it comes to the Chinese community, it will probably take them days or like even weeks like to realize that so specific thing is like a flaw. 
And that is also the reason that many of these like the historical like record high crypto Ponzi scheme always get traction here in China. During this DeFi hype cycle, I would have imagined a lot of capital's been washed out already. And something I, I wanted to bring up because you've tweeted about this in the past is this withdrawal movement that has been happening in China. You've said, so let me just paraphrase your, your tweet here. A side effect of this DeFi narrative and, and farming hype is revealing some of these major flaws that, that you just talked about of centralized exchanges to average users. And centralized exchanges are so crucial to really the maturation of the Chinese crypto capital markets, at least, right? Will be OKX, so forth. These two main uh, staples um, are, you know, the platforms, the, the super platforms that these users can, you know, deposit, withdraw, trade, borrow, lend, stake, you know, all these different things and bridging even uh, CFI with, with more of the DeFi ecosystem. All of this stuff is being done through just a handful of centralized exchanges based in China. And so, with all of this DeFi outflow, I'm wondering whether this capital will ever return to centralized exchanges. Is that something that you're seeing already? Or are these you know, average retail users that you've been talking about really looking to DeFi as the alternative of participating in crypto on centralized exchanges? Um. If we think about the scale, and I think the uh, majority of the retail investor, like I said, they're still like uh, highly spoiled by decentralized exchanges here, and 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 then like because of the reason that uh, it's very hard to validate. So because of the reason it's very hard to validate the legitimacy of any services, especially in like the DeFi world, right? Because average, so like average investors, so they can't read the call, so they can't just back the contract, right? So I think majority of the retail investors, they still have trust around centralized exchanges as like a service. And especially they trust someone that they, so they basically know them by face. That's why the top, like the top three, like either Binance, OK, Hobby, Gate, etc., or like KuCoin, they have like an army of customer service people or account managers. So they always want to build that, like the physical trust among their customers. And I think that's hard to change. Like that's hard to change at least for another long period of time, probably for years. And I don't think it's necessary for many average retail investors that they have to use DeFi. If you are in the world of like DeFi, you have to be self-responsible, right? You have to hold yourself accountable for any of your operation. And I think this to many retail investors, especially retail Chinese investor, is kind of like, like the risk is just too high and doesn't worth the effort. So I think for many of them, they should just stay on centralized exchanges. And so I don't think we are going to see centralized exchanges like going away and I think their role is not going to be less influential, to be honest. Like the withdrawal movement is definitely like an enlightened movement, especially to a small group of technical savvy retail investors. So I think that's a really good start. And, and so for us to propagate the core crypto ethos. So like given in the near future, like everything going to be digitized, especially here in China, we are going to see the like the whole penetration of like the digital fiat currency. And so I think 
just to plant the seed of this like not your key like not your coin ethos is like very very critical talking about like the large outflow of the crypto asset from central exchanges and i think that's more just like that's more like yield driven because like if you have your capital on centralized exchanges and most likely you want to trade right for many of these like, traders if the yield farming profits can easily outperform their like trading profits there's no point having their asset on the centralized exchanges so so i think it's more of a economic decision that made by many of these centralized users so made by all these SX users, just as CEX users. So rather than purely philosophical driven that I want to remove my coin because of uh, all this uh, like XYZ potential like disadvantage from this centralized exchanges. And, and so I think when they made the decision, so they more think about what is my opportunity cost of my capital? Yeah. Yeah, this is... I think influenced by the culture of pragmatism that a lot of people talk about when they look yep. to Asia yep. right, and, and China specifically. So I have really, I mean, tons of questions, but continuing along the lines of our theme talking about monetary sovereignty. When you zoom this out and you look at China from a bird's eye view, there's a lot of stuff that's happening that will really dictate the future of China when it comes to their dominance within the monetary system by way of internationalization of the renminbi, by way of experimenting and spearheading the experiment on the digital currency side of things. Um, so I really do want to wrap up our conversation, you know, highlighting the digital currency experiment that is going on. It is hitting the ground running right now. We were talking a little bit before this conversation saying that uh, the digital yuan experiment started this week in Shenzhen. So can you yeah, just take us through, you know, why is this so important? How is China really embrace this digital currency experiment so quickly? Um, and it kind of connect that really to broader macro themes for China. Yeah, I think we can talk about this topic for, for probably another three hours. And but I just want to have a very quick take. So first of all, like the digital yuan, like this whole development, why it can progress like so quickly, especially in the eyes of like Western community is Chinese government or like CCP, like they're really good at just that centralized resource allocation and all this like, infrastructure building, right? Like in the past, infrastructure means all these like buildings and railways and like factories. So now the CCP has a new focus around like new infrastructure, AI, 5G, and like blockchain. Digital Yuan is the most important like development of this like, new infrastructure development plan. So there's a lot of like resources has been allocated in like past five years, I would say. The first article of, of the Digital Yuan from PBOC was published back in 2014. So it is not something that happened just like over the night, right? So it has, there's like six years of like development already. Like right now it's just like everything converged together. And like now we have wallet and we have the support of all the commercial banks and they have command this like partnership of this like consortium chain notes from like Tencent, Ali, et cetera, right? So it's everything converged. So for the end users, there's nothing too much dramatic i would say it's so it's like a change of like payment method and so if you have used like wechat pay or like alipay 
So my younger sister, like she's living Shenzhen. And so for her, it's more like, okay, I've just installed this new like mobile app on my phone. So I can wire like the, like the banking money into this wallet and I can use this wallet just as like WeChat Pay or like Alipay and I can use for like Subway, I can use for like convenience or like things like that, right? This week, you can use the digital yuan in like over like 3,000 local merchants already. So for like everyday usage and, and so it's just like a simple transition from previous like WeChat Pay like probably to the current digital yuan payment. None of them will think about the significance in the future when it comes to like monetary expansion or like subtraction in a automation way, right? Because like this is different than digitization of fiat. This is digital fiat, right? So digital fiat means is issued by the central bank and distributed by the commercial banks, right? And then so anything like helicopter money or or just like any other monetary program at a very granular level, it can be easily done just like by software development. So it is just like a few lines of code, right? Like Chinese Central Bank has been known for a very strong-handed market involvement. Previously, they will still need to depend on a commercial bank and the other like the potential like even like shadow banking institution like help them with that. Say for instance, if they want to cool down the housing market and they have to ask all this like uh, commercial bank and then any institution that can offer mortgage service to probably cool down the whole mortgage service quite a bit. And then in the future, like what they can do is, okay, this portion of the Yuan or like renminbi cannot just like flow into that market sector. Like that can all be done online. So just like, think about it, right? And also when it comes to the internet, so like when it comes to the geo expansion of the UN dominance, and China has been built on this like, one belt, one road initiative. And there are 30, 50 other developing countries that has been on this alliance, right? I can totally imagine in the future, the central bank from the counterpart, they will also have some kind of like mobile application like sits on the phone of their own like citizens. And then there will be central bank, like inter-central bank swap. And they happen just on this mobile application. Because uh, if you are WeChat or if you're Alipay, you will still go through this like this like, foreign exchange route if you want to do the foreign exchange settlement. But if your application authorized and developed by all these like, central bankers, you can easily do the foreign exchange settlement just on their own private ledger. Just think about a consortium chain or just like a private chain, like a federal. So it's like a federated, it's like a federated blockchain like maintained by this like 30, 50 different central bankers. And, and so like that's totally possible. So I think in the future, we are going to see this like type of this like internet partition uh, where the Western, uh, where like the Western internet access like gonna be different than the Chinese internet access. We're also going to see this like currency partition as well. So the renminbi gonna have its own like sub geo dominance uh, along this uh, one belt one road initiative and then possibly in Africa and then facilitated by this uh, digital yuan infrastructure. Incredible. <laughs> this is really just the intro yeah. of a book, I think. It's not even chapter one. This is just the intro setting up the conversation. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I think we have seen the history just reveal itself just for the first three minutes. And, and there's, I can't imagine how things will evolve. And then it might be, uh, it might be good, it might be bad. And and so a lot of people are like referring to like the big brother is watching you. Um, and um, I don't know. So, but but like, uh, I think Bitcoin and the whole true decentralized like cryptocurrency uh, offer us a plan B. And it's like an alternative. So it's like an insurance like, towards your like self-sovereignty. And, and so so I myself, I do enjoy all the convenience offered by this like, digitization of fear or in the future, like digital fear. But uh, I want myself have a alternative and like plan B as well. And then same for my children and for the next generations to come. Um, yeah, so like we are not living this like, like like mutually exclusive world and i so i think like the world gonna converging and but you will need to make a decision for yourself and and and, and so if you want to trade your privacy self-sovereignty for the convenience like that's fine but i think for many people like me and then we all want to have alternative and we like that's why we stick with the plan b Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Regardless of, you know, your your take on what's happening right now with the digital currency experiment, um, I, don't, I don't think anyone can debate that there will be massive implications for generations to come. And this is being played out all over the world, not just in China. It's connecting crypto with the macro themes of the world, right? We don't live in a silo and we can't think in a silo anymore because, as you said, Debbie, we are becoming more interconnected, more globalized um, and more dependent on each other regardless of where we are. So Davi, with that, thank you so much for sharing your convictions about the space and and, and your views, you know, everything uh, from crypto to more specifically on DeFi East and DeFi West. And we sort of got a taste of the digital currency experiment that's happening now in China. We'll explore this topic more in the following episodes on this show. Devi, you're very active on Twitter, so can you give our audience your handle and really anywhere else, um, either on Chinese media platforms or Western media platforms that you're active on? Yeah, sure. So if you're a Western audience, so you can follow me on Twitter at Wan, D-O-V-E-Y-W-A-N. And if you're a Chinese audience and you can follow me on Weibo and just also search Davi. Uh, and so I think my account will like, pop up. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, Davi, it was a pleasure to have you on and really look forward to a future conversation with you, hopefully in person and events. Soon. Yeah. Soon TM. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Leslie. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, Please share and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Also check out our Crypto Unstacked YouTube channel. I'll provide details in the show notes. Until next time, take care Unstackers and see you at the next episode.